Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. And joining us today is Professor Carolyn Bertozzi to tell us a little bit about sugar chemistry. In addition, you can find out just exactly what causes skin pigmentation. Stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Mason Porter. Hey, Mason. So, uh, joining us for the first time, right? Yep. I'm taking advantage of being back on the West Coast and being at Berkeley. Well, we're, we're certainly glad to have you here. We had you on the program once before, as I recall. Yeah. I as visiting in, um, assistant professor. <laughs> yeah, some of those fancy titles. I'm a postdoc, okay? Get oh, over uh, it, people. Okay. Okay. For those of you who don't know, it's it's not the same thing. Mm. <laughs> it's a, Almost. It's a, it's an interesting state of uh, of being. It's like low-fat milk versus uh, non-fat milk, right? <laughs> yeah, but there's too many people higher on the ladder. <laughs> Way too many people. Oh, the trials of academia. Exactly. We can talk about that all. Anyway. The politics. So uh, you're, you're visiting from uh, Georgia Tech, is that right? Yep. I'm at um, MSRI for the semester, so just up the hill. Okay. And how's that going? It's going pretty well. I, I've had time to sit down and finish stuff I meant to finish about four or five months ago, <laughs> and I've been getting to learn from some experts, which is always nice. Yeah. That's my schedule, too, except it's more like a year or two. Wow. So doing theoretical math stuff, then? Um, well, I do applied math and theoretical okay. physics, okay. but um, some some of the stuff I'm learning is actually a more theoretical math, just because I don't know that side of this subject as well. I see. So I mean, so I'm auditing uh, a class from from one of those guys. Oh, good. Well, uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll hear more from you. I guess as long as you're here and continue yeah, oh, absolutely. All right. So what's what's going on in science this week? Uh, actually, something from the hill. The hill, also known as LVL. Okay. Been there? That's the other part of the hill. <laughs> Um, so this is work carried out by Professor Sung Ho Kim, okay. also with the uh, Department of Chemistry here at Berkeley. And what he's done is create a protein map. A protein map. Right. So uh, this is the so-called periodic table for proteins. Oh, so is this like a grouping of proteins based on structures or something like that? Right, grouping on the folds and their oh, structures. Neat. Is this complete or just approximate? Um, it's just a way to visualize uh, the most common folds that are, uh, you know, that we observed. And they actually made one uh, new discovery because originally they had three classes of these. One folds. new discovery is a lot more <laughs> than people usually have, <laughs> believe me. Uh, apparently now there's four types of folds. Four types of folds? Yes. Uh, so I know there's like the alpha helix, the uh-huh. beta sheet, um, some kind of barrel there's thing. There's a gamma right. thing, isn't there? Yeah, yeah no? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what this fourth fold is, but apparently um, huh. this recent article was in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a good journal. Uh, yeah. uh, our favorite journal, right? Right. Penis. So wh- what, what <laughs> methods did he use? What methods? Uh, actually, I'm not very clear on that. 
I mean, were they computational or experimental? Or? Probably a lot of it's... Um, well, he has 500 data points, so I assume a lot of it's computational. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, I mean, there are a lot of computer science type people who have been working in protein folding lately. Uh, indeed, indeed. I guess maybe he just looked at all the structures and probably grouped them and looked at uh, whatever things were similar, I imagine. Right. Uh, so, basically, his message is that... Um, a lot of the functions that we see are based more on the shape of the proteins rather than sequences because previously what we would do is look at the sequences and then find uh-huh. other proteins that have the same functions. Uh-huh. But evolutionary turns out a lot of uh, same functions are from the shapes rather than the sequences. Right. Well, but, that, that's Don't yeah. a lot of different sequences give the same thing anyway, right? Like you have, for a given amino acid, you might have several sequences that code for it. Right. It, well, for it's given shape, there's like a different, lot of different uh, right. sequences that'll do that. Right. But that's that's the big protein folding problem. Is like yeah. how do you predict the structure from the sequence? Right. Um, anyway, cool. Cool. So uh, if anyone wants more, more, just go to uh, this recent issue of the PNAS. PNAS. <laughs> yummy. Available I'm not, for I'm free not, online. Uh, maybe it's not yummy. <laughs> So that evil laugh you've heard in your head for the last week or so has probably been coming from a biology laboratory in Japan. Really? Yeah, because uh, apparently... But I hear an evil laugh in my head every week. Well, this one, the, m- most recently, it's been coming from the uh, Japanese biologists who have been decapitating infant rats and grafting their heads onto the thighs of adult rats. So we've got little adult rats with baby rat heads grafted onto them. The purpose of this uh, of this experiment, apart from you know making creating freaks and playing God, uh, apparently, is, uh, <laughs> Time, is to though. test uh, the theory that cooling the brain when it's cut off from its flow of oxygen helps mm-hmm. to prevent uh, brain damage. Okay. For example, if you were to, if for some reason you, your brain were, were cut off from its flow its flow of oxygen, you could cool the uh, the victim until you could uh, bring that person like how bring cold that person are we back. talking about here? Um, something around 19 degrees. Centigrade, so oh come on, you got to use the Fahrenheit system. Not the US. terribly, terribly cold. Well, this is Japanese. Oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, so not not too cold actually. Kind of refrigerator temperatures were able to to help for about ninety minutes. Uh, these these brains could these uh, heads could continue to function, and then after being grafted onto the adults' thighs, the brains continued to develop normally for about three weeks, and the heads moved around and and. Uh, Tried to drink milk. Apparently, uh, <laughs> they tried to drink. Yeah, milk. so it does the body good. Really, you know? this this raises a whole. I mean, apart from being a very very strange thing to do, this raises a whole host of ethical questions. Because of course, this could be tested by simply say tying off the uh, carotid artery of the baby rats and, and mm-hmm. cooling them, and then untying it and not actually cutting their heads off. You know, there is another so, uh, possibility. They might have wanted to to win an Ig Nobel Prize. Possibly so, but uh, various um, various animal rights groups are understandably up in arms about this particular research, but it turns out, apparently, that cooling severed heads is a way to, uh, to keep them... Chill out, keep, dude. Keep them, keep them, keep them going. Uh, so, as always... Is this, is this as service always, available for humans yet? Cooler heads prevail. So where can we find out more about this? Uh, if you want to find out more about this, no, it's not available for humans, unfortunately, although see, we could try it. See, well, I mean, I think it might be a good alternative to, like, my current career path. That's what I was thinking. I see. Okay. Well, uh, you know, they they pay. I mean, they pay people to like subject themselves to various things in science. Yeah. Well, if you wanted to try it out, you could check out the uh, latest issue of Neuroscience Letters, Volume Three Twenty Five, Page Thirty Seven. Excellent.
So what's the biggest surprise in stem cells this week? Um, the stems. And and the cells. And the seeds. That The fact that cells have stems. Who would have thought? I, you know, not yeah. me. Okay, but uh, some pretty cool stuff, actually, with uh, stem cells. Uh, again, in our favorite uh, journal, PNAS. 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 Uh, apparently what they've done is they've discovered stem cells in uh, blood Blood? Blood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to say blood something. Blood yeah, okay. I, was, I was waiting also. Oh. Okay. All right, I'll do that again then. So there, there's a punchline. Yeah. They've discovered stem cells in blood. In okay. blood? Yes. And wow. what are they going to do with them? Well, uh, apparently so. Um, these stem cells that they found were uh, actually fortuitously discovered. That the, a technician was unable to take care of these cell cultures for a while. And can't rely on technicians anymore. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? Uh, but it, it turned out to be a good thing because uh, these stem... these blood culture cells essentially started proliferating into things that did not look like blood cells. And uh, apparently they thought, well, geez, what are they? And they started culturing them and doing all kinds of things, and they found out they could take a certain class of uh, blood cells called these uh, monocytes and transform them into all kinds of things, nerve cells, liver cells, heart cells. So apparently there's a class of stem cells in the blood that circulate around, and they're proposing that these things basically go to the sites of where things need to be regenerated and maybe latch on and start proliferating new stuff. Well, that really sort of... uh messes with the uh, basic ethical questions behind stem cells, doesn't it? Yes. Because if they're in blood, then suddenly... Uh, well, then we can't get blood transfusion. Exactly. According to the anti-stem cell people, then uh, blood transfusion would be equivalent to abortion, which is <laughs> yeah, not quite... Well, I mean, I we mean, might as well just go really back to voodoo yeah. dolls and acupuncture and things like that, and that would remove the whole controversy. You know, I, I think we, we made a mistake from moving away from that whole uh, thing in the whole place... I don't know like personally, moving I like, away you know, from that thing, all that in the first place. Well, so I mean, if you poke one, sometimes it really hurts. <laughs> you know, I think the Mormons were onto something because they don't believe in blood transfusion, right? They uh, also have multiple wives, and that's not so bad either. I thought that was the Christian scientist, but I guess it's all the same thing. We're going to get letters on that one. But anyway, <laughs> <I'm> so... <sorry. laughs> sure are. Sure. I'll but, be gone in a couple of days. Hey. We, 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 we don't really... Uh, we, we make no... <laughs> No claims for or against any any religious belief on this show. We just uh, except that they're all wrong. But <laughs> yeah. apparently, badmouth them. But we don't really mean it. So I didn't sorry. tell them I was going to say I what I just it. said. <laughs> but uh, it's a good thing Brian's here to temper our our atheistic endeavors. Uh, but this is pretty cool. So it's actually in the uh, the recent issue of uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it was carried out by um, Eliezer Huberman of Argonne National Laboratories. Well, that's all for this week's look at current events in the world. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Professor Carol Vertozzi will join us to tell us a little bit about sugar chemistry. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, on today's interview, we're going to do a little chemistry. While some people may see chemistry with bitterness as they look back to their high school years, see it as a sweet opportunity. Among the emerging research topics in this field is sugar chemistry. Well, joining us today to tell us a little bit about sugar chemistry and its relationship to biological processes is Professor Carolyn Bertozzi. Professor Bertozzi is from our very own Department of Chemistry here at UC Berkeley, and she's also a MacArthur Fellow. 
Professor Patozzi, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So could you first tell us a little bit about your field and how you got involved with it? Yeah, so my research group is interested in understanding how sugar molecules uh, guide interactions between cells. And these are interactions that take place normally in the human body. So they're a normal part of the development of tissues and organs. They're a normal part of the functioning of the immune system. But sometimes things go wrong, and mm-hmm. the structures of those sugars change, mm-hmm. and that can lead to inappropriate interactions between cells and to human disease. So that's one of the motivating factors to try and understand the biology of sugars, because we want to try and craft new therapeutic approaches to stop human disease. Basically, it started when I was a graduate student here at Berkeley, in the same building that I'm in now, <laughs> and I worked for a chemist named Mark Bednarski, uh, and he was interested in synthetic methods for building complex sugar molecules. Mm-hmm. So I started as a synthetic chemist, and I was reading about hydrates and how important they are in biology, and that got me interested in what one could do with the synthetic carbohydrate molecules mm-hmm. in a biomedical research environment. Right. So when I finished my Ph.D. at Berkeley, I took a postdoctoral position at UCSF in the immunology program, to learn about how sugars cause interactions between white blood cells, which are floating around in your bloodstream normally, and blood vessels, Mm -hmm. which, of course, are the tubes that the blood flows. And it turns out that when white blood cells stick to blood vessels because of the sugars that are on the surface of the blood vessels, Mm -hmm. you can stimulate an inflammatory reaction. And at sites of chronic inflammation, so, for example, in the joints of somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, there are changes in the sugars on the sides of the blood vessel, mm-hmm. and those altered sugars allow the white blood cells to stick, and you get these white blood cells accumulating in the tissue, and that's what causes the pathology of inflammation caused to the tissue and swelling and pain. So I worked in that lab for about two and a half years, uh, learning the cell biology and how to study the disease process, and now what we do at Berkeley is kind of a fusion of the two things. So we make synthetic molecules. And we also study the interactions between cells using those synthetic molecules, and we try and come up with ways of preventing diseases like inflammation. So this is why some people describe your work as the interface of biology and chemistry, is that right? Yeah, I suppose so. And these sugars you talk about, how do they relate to the rates in people's diets? Well, they're kind of interchangeable. You know, so people use the word sugar or carbohydrate or polysaccharide rather interchangeably. Mm-hmm. There's really, you know, no strict definition Um, carbohydrates in your diet tend to be very simple. So they're composed of just one or a few building blocks. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you eat uh, candy bars, you're ingesting a lot of sucrose. Right. And that's a disaccharide, so it has two building blocks linked together. And when you eat it, it gets broken down into glucose and fructose. And fructose is what you find in fruit. That's a fruit sugar. Mm -hmm. Glucose... Um, is the major constituent of starch and of cellulose. Mm -hmm. And cellulose is what trees are made of, and we can't digest that. But starch, of course, is in potatoes and corn and grains, and that is a major source of dietary sugars for us. So starch is a long polymer of glucose. Right. So when you're eating just foods from your diet, you're ingesting primarily glucose and maybe a little bit of fructose. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two. But then your body processes those sugars, and converts them into nine other building blocks. And that all happens inside your cell. Hmm. Those nine building blocks get stitched together to make 
the kinds of polysaccharides that you find decorating the surface of cells. Mm-hmm. And those have a much more complex structure than anything, that, than your major dietary sources of energy. And we use those for molecular recognition between cells, for communication between cells. We decorate a lot of our proteins with these complex polysaccharides, and that's important for their pharmacokinetic properties and trafficking of those proteins to different parts of the body. So these sugars in your body have a very sophisticated function, whereas the sugars that come in from your diet are very simple, and they're there basically to provide energy. So these sugars you talk about at your cell surface, are they often uh, composites with proteins, or are they in proteins? Um, for the most part, the sugars in your body are linked to either proteins or lipids. There are a few complex polysaccharides that just kind of float around by themselves, but there's very few. The majority of your polysaccharides are linked to proteins or lipids, and most of them are on proteins. So the proteins are scaffolds mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that anchor these things into the plasma membrane so that the sugars are projecting out, kind of like the trunk of a tree, you know, anchors a tree to the ground. Right. But then you've got all these leaves all over the tree. Yeah. And the leaves are kind of like the sugars on a protein. Oh, I see. That's kind of, I mean, that's a cartoon that people often draw to depict what's going on. Uh, do you see any drugs coming out of this in the near future? Well, one hopes. You know, I mean, drug development is a very laborious process. But, right. you know, a lot of what we do in my lab is fundamental research. Right. And we try and understand, you know, what are the enzymes that have changed to make these altered sugars that uh-huh. then provoke the disease. And then those enzymes are potential targets for drug discovery. And so, for example, we've discovered some enzymes over the last few years that are induced at sites of chronic inflammation. And if you inhibit those enzymes, you'll prevent the biosynthesis of these altered sugars, and you can stop the inflammatory reaction. And so myself and some colleagues uh, from UCSF and from some local pharmaceutical companies have formed a collaboration. And, in fact, we spun out a new startup company that will be doing drug discovery in a commercial sector targeting some of these enzymes. And uh, which company is this? That's uh, Thios Pharmaceuticals. I see. T-H-I-O-S, Thios. You talked about the inflammatory response, so do you foresee like um, a better um, pain reliever, better headache medicine coming out from this? Well, we, we're not so much targeting pain, uh-huh. but we're trying to target the underlying mechanisms that cause the inflammation in the first place. Right. So, for example, um, something that targets pain would be an a- analgesic. Right. But an anti-inflammatory agent is something else. Uh-huh. And there are compounds that can be both. So, for example, Advil is an anti-inflammatory agent. Right. Acetaminophen, I believe? Um, that's uh, Tylenol. Oh, okay. Advil is ibuprofen. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And ibuprofen inhibits cyclooxygenase, which is an enzyme mm-hmm. involved in prostaglandin mm-hmm. biosynthesis. Um, so what we're targeting is an enzyme that puts a sulfate group on a carbohydrate. And when it does that, the carbohydrate can now bind very tightly to circulating white blood cells. But without the sulfate group, the carbohydrate won't bind to these white blood cells. And so we want to inhibit the enzyme that puts the sulfate group on. So our compounds would basically block the influx of white blood cells into tissues and thereby prevent the cells that are causing the tissue damage and prevent the swelling. And so we're targeting a pathway that's upstream of any of the pain that you experience. We're trying to block the underlying mechanism that causes the tissue damage that then causes the pain, if you know what I mean. I see. <coughs> So, for example, uh, if if you're like a um, if you got organ transplant, that would uh, you can help uh, suppress the immune system from attacking the organ. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, one of our indications is a chronic transplant rejection, and our target wouldn't be something that suppresses the immune system globally. Mm-hmm. What it would suppress is the migration of white blood cells into the 
you know, the, un, the uh, foreign organ. Right. So these are inhibitors of homing of white blood cells to tissues. They prevent the uh, blood cells from entering the tissues. By contrast, an immunosuppressant would prevent all of your white blood cells from being activated. Uh-huh. And that's not what we're trying to achieve <laughs> because you need those processes to combat microbial infections yeah, and so yeah. on. And, in fact, that's one of the major problems with present anti-inflammatory drugs. Most of them do suppress the immune system. And so in addition to preventing the bad inflammation, you also prevent the good inflammation, which is what you need to fight bacterial infections. And the target that we've identified is one that seems to be only involved in bad inflammation and not so much in the good inflammation, which is why it's such an attractive target. Uh, Could you tell us the greatest challenges you have with this work right now? Well, I think, you know, like any drug discovery effort, um, in our laboratory, of course, the challenge is to, you know, set up the right proof-of-concept experiments Mm -hmm. to give us confidence that this is a good drug target. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult to do because these are drug targets that are in humans. They have to do with human biology. Right. And one can't set up model experiments in the lab using human patients. (laughs) And that's something that requires a clinical trial. But before one can get to a clinical trial... One has to develop, you know, good small molecule drug candidates that are not toxic and so on, and that's very expensive and can take many years. And so before investing all that money, you'd like to have some confidence that the target you're going after really is a good target for human disease, but you can't do any experiments in humans. So the challenge is to set up other kinds of experiments that we think are good indicators of what will happen later down the line in a human clinical trial Mm -hmm. so that our investment of all this money for developing the small molecules is worth it. That's a major challenge for, for any drug discovery effort. Right. Now, that's a, a project which is largely taking place in, in this company, not so much in my lab. You know, my lab has done a lot of the preliminary work, mm-hmm. and there's another lab at UCSF which has also contributed a, a lot to this project. In fact, the, the initial target, the gene encoding this target, was discovered in his lab. Um, but right now in my lab, we're trying to, you know, kind of ask the next fundamental science question. For example, we're trying to identify where precisely within the cell this enzyme resides. And we've discovered that its location within the cell is a major determinant of its function. Hmm. And so, you know, our challenge is to, you know, become experts in the cell biology techniques that we need to really understand how this enzyme works inside a cell and also to become expert in the chemical techniques to study the enzyme and, and becoming, you know, a world-class expert in both the chemistry and the cell biology just puts that much more burden on the students working on the project. (laughs) So they have to learn twice as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, Berkeley students are smart, as you know. And I think if anybody can do it, it's a Berkeley student. (laughs) Right. Uh, And, you know, if we were somewhere else, then, you know, you'd worry. But (laughs) Berkeley, no problem. (laughs) We can take on the world. That's right. Uh, So I just want to change the topic. So besides the wonderful research you're doing, I understand you're also very committed to science education. Um, do you have any comments on our science education and any advice for people who are interested in getting into it? Well, I think, you know, it's we live in a technology-driven society, clearly, and I think uh, for anyone to function in the society and, and contribute, you, you need to have some basic knowledge of science, no matter what your profession is. You know, I think just people who vote for politicians, you know, any mm-hmm. citizen who's a voting citizen, to understand uh, some basic level of of technology so that they're making good decisions in the polls. So for that purpose, I think everyone, you know, does need to understand, you know, what, you know, there's a lot of debate right now, for example, about stem cell research Mm -hmm. and what fuels that debate. What are the issues? What are we risking 
if we if we block or impede stem cell research? What are we risking if we permit stem stem cell research? You know, there are politicians who are forming policies that affect this, and we vote for those politicians. So I think people need to understand the basic issues. And to understand stem cell research, you need to understand the basics of the genetic code. Right. You know, and so I think that's really important. Uh, same with chemistry. You know, we are electing politicians who are forming policies with respect to our environmental restrictions and with respect to whether or not we build additional power plants in the state of California and with respect to whether we drill for oil offshore and to understand how those activities affect our economy, affect the environment, and so on. You have to understand the underlying chemistry, the underlying physics. I mean, really basic stuff. You know, you don't need a Ph.D., you know, mm-hmm. but, but you need to understand what are the issues, what is the science, so that you can make good decisions, again, at, on, in the polls. Also, it's our responsibility to educate those politicians right. so that they can make good decisions. And they have teams of advisors that do this. You know. But, you know, as academics, I think it's important that we contribute to this which means we write articles, we write letters to our politicians, and we try and educate our students so that they can make decisions and have an impact. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it has to start when kids are pretty young. Right. Any plans for office? Me? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I'm the last person you'd want in there. <laughs> uh, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Do you have any final comments you'd like to add? Oh, not really. Who, are you, what's your, who is your listening audience? Uh, about 2,000 people in the Bay Area. And they're sort of scientists, non-scientists? students? Yeah, every, everything, Everybody. the whole gamut. Well, I would say that, you know, I encourage people to try and, you know, take note of what's going on in the government and in academia and in industry at the frontier of technology development. And one way to do that is to take a look at the front section of science, mm-hmm. you know, the journal, the magazine. You know, science, of course, is a scientific journal and there's technical articles in there and someone who's not a professional scientist, you know, would have and maybe a limited appreciation of those articles. The beginning, you know, at the first half of that magazine is dedicated mostly to discussions of policy, discussions of what's going on in the government and what's going on in industry, and, and sort of lay description, non-technical descriptions of major scientific breakthroughs of the week. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, even the sort of layperson could get a lot out of that. If, for example, my father is a scientist. Okay, he's a professor of physics. So he subscribes to science, and it comes to our house. He doesn't hardly read it. But my mother, who is not a scientist, in fact, she was a French engineer in college, uh, she reads the beginning parts of science, and she gets a lot out of that, and she calls me, and we talk about stuff, and she has questions about things. And it helps her understand, you know, the little sound bites that she reads in the newspaper or what she sees on the 6 o'clock news. Mm-hmm. So if I had to recommend anything to anybody, if they want to learn more about science without going back to college and getting a Ph.D. or anything like that, you know, just start flipping through the front pages of science. It's cheap, and you can can pick this up at even at newsstands in some places. Well, Professor Bertozzi, I just want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Carolyn Bertozzi here on Berkeley Grocks. For those of you interested in getting to know more about her research, you can check out her homepage at www.ccam.berkeley.edu backslash crbgrp. In a few moments, the Crazy Scotsman will join us on Berkeley Grocks, so stay tuned.
Welcome back, Fox. Alright, and now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, that's right, Frank. Thanks again for letting me be on my show. I'm really kind of curious why us Scots are all so pasty faced and it's not really like great. If only we had more skin pigmentation. I mean, what is it that really gives us the skin pigmentation, or at least the ones that are not Scots? Well, the fact is, the skin pigmentation is caused by all these kinds of uh, chemical compounds in your skin called melatonin, and when the sunlight hits it, it come, breaks down into a different sort of compound, and you get melatonin in the middle of it, and it's not really like great, because then you become pigmentated, and that's how you become skin pigmentation. I thought it was the stem cells in your blood. Uh, stem cells are really great. Okay, now here's Mason with this week's question of the week. And the question is... What is a buckyball? And, for extra credit, what is it good for? And what year did it win Time's Molecule of the Year? If you know the answer, email grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but it'll help you avoid the mafia. And this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Mixture Pixel. Thank you.